They liked having me so much on the Financial Residency Podcast that they've invited me back for seconds. It's a good thing I wore my stretchy pants. This month, we'll be talking about getting into medical expert witness work. And isn't diversifying your income streams a tenet of financial stability? We'll talk to an anesthesiologist turned VC. He can be pretty loud. You'll see what I mean when we get there. I'll also talk to two private practice otolaryngologists, one who sold to private equity and the other one who didn't. I was hoping it would be a Thunderdome-style debate where two men enter and one man leaves, but turns out it was a very civil discussion that gave us all a lot to think about. And if they keep me around even longer, we'll gain some cultural competence learning what our colleagues, trainees, and patients want us to know about Islam. We'll talk to ambassadors from private equity, friend or foe, learn about what to say to patients when we've had a complication from a lawyer, learn when it's okay to discuss a patient's weight and how to go about it, and how to start a social impact business without giving up equity with income to match your physician income. Dr. Amy Fogelman is board certified in internal medicine with 17 years of experience seeing patients at ambulatory practices in the Boston area. She went to medical school at BU and stayed in Boston for her internal medicine residency at Beth Israel. She then did a chief year in primary care at the VA hospital in West Roxbury. She's been awarded prizes in clinical excellence and leadership at MGH. She's been consulting for personal injury attorneys for a while, and while she's been doing that work, she noticed a void in the consulting field, which is what her consulting firm, MedLaw, seeks to fill. It uses the primary care model, where Dr. Fogelman serves as the litigator's own personal medical expert for the entire case, as if the lawyer had an in-house physician on staff, and now she teaches this. In 2020, she began formally advising medical professionals on the ins and outs of medical expert witness work and even has a course. So we discuss common misconceptions among physicians about this type of work, how to get started, how to avoid screwing up your first few cases so that you can continue doing it, the compensation model, and why one should avoid just doing defense work while keeping your moral compass. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today, we'll be reading Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic TikToks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock TikToks, then locum is the token to unburn the burnt out broken. So how many clock TikToks must talk until docs tick box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt out broken. Enough ticks have talked. The time is now, and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, mend to burnt out ends. For more locum tenens information, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory. It's your final destination. Dr. Amy Fogelman, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. So tell us your origin story. How did you get into expert witness work? It's an interesting story. So 
this is one of those questions I answered a little bit differently than how you asked it. So about 10 years ago, one of my colleagues who did a lot of medical expert work had a case where he wasn't that experienced with that particular issue. And he asked if I would be interested in taking it on. And so I jumped at this chance. You know, I really enjoyed it. And since then, I've gotten a lot of experience. And in 2018, I started my own expert witness company. So I found it's called Medlock Consulting in 2018. One of the things that I specialize in is medical expert matching. So attorneys hire me to find the right medical experts for their cases. So you're the Yenta of medical malpractice. I am exactly the Yenta. I try and to Yenta is the name of the people. character, just so everybody knows, <laughs> not the matchmaker. Mm-hmm. Yenta is the name of the character. Okay, oh, okay. Sorry. So while doing this work, I found that there's there are a lot of medical professionals out there who were interested in doing and being medical experts in theory, but they were unsure actually how to get into it. They had a lot of questions. And so I started formally advising medical professionals on the ins and outs of doing medical expert work. And I enjoy this type of work. And I also enjoy helping novice experts dip their toes into this water. So it's a win-win. So what are some of those misconceptions about physicians that are interested in getting into expert witness work? Because I would imagine a lot of physicians are saying, yeah, I could do that. And then that's kind of the end of it, right? They don't end up actively pursuing, seeking out lawyers. They're just, if a case falls in their lap that they're comfortable with, fine, they'll do it, but they don't end up doing legwork to get more work. So that's more two questions. One, what are some misconceptions? And then two, how do we get started? How do we get started? Okay, sure. So I can hit both of those questions. Basically, I think some of the misconceptions, a lot of what I get is that some doctors think that medical experts are their enemy. I, they clearly don't understand what the role of an expert witness is. So just, I'm sure that you know this, Brad, but just for your listeners, like we are there to give an unbiased review of the facts of the case. No matter who hires us, we look at the facts and say what we think. And our job is actually not to win the case for this the side that we've been hired by. So many times as plaintiff experts, our job is actually to educate the plaintiff attorneys in medical malpractice cases when there has been no medical malpractice. So as you know, oftentimes there might be a sad outcome, but it is a known complication and and not necessarily medical malpractice. And so that is actually what our job is for many of the cases. And I think that's an incredibly important role that I don't take lightly. And as long as we're being honest and unbiased, the attorneys trust our opinion because we're straight shooters. So I do think that there's definitely a misconception that, oh, if I'm working for the plaintiff attorney in a med mal case, I'm doing really evil work. I don't think that's true, actually. Got it. So our our job is to screen the cases for them and let them know that a lot of the cases that might end up in front of them are actually doctors that are practicing good medicine, and then they'll then not take those cases because it's not worth it for them, not or they realize they're not appropriate. A good attorney is going to want to know if they have a stinker of a case, right? 
And so they're going to want you to look at it and tell them, no, this is not a good case. You're going to lose it. And they'll appreciate finding that out early on in the life of the case, rather than waiting until further along down the, down the line, once you get to trial or something like that. So you're saying we're supposed to give our unbiased opinion, but it's impossible to be completely unbiased, right? We have our implicit biases, right? How do we distance ourselves from that? And how do we, because we might have a, a tendency to just say, you know what, this, I'm sure this doctor, like read between the lines. It sounds like this doctor was really trying to do the right thing. This is really an unfortunate outcome and like kind of stretching things in order to really try to defend the doctor instead of being completely unbiased. It's challenging, right? But I think part of that is understanding what exactly is being asked of you. And part of that is understanding the law. So we as doctors don't understand what the legal questions are. That's, we didn't learn about that in in medical school. We learned, you know, our own medical vocabulary and the lawyers have their own vocabulary, which is very different. And so we will learn, you'll, you'll find out, okay, well, what is the legal question that I'm being asked? What does the definition of that actually mean? And how do I make determination? And it's usually fairly clear once you understand what the question is and what the framework is about what your opinion is going to be on a certain case. If it's too, if you're unsure, then, then you can tell the attorney that as well, but you're not going to you know, go on the stand with something that you don't feel strongly about. Okay. You sound confused. Yeah, I'm, I am. Tell me what you're confused about. But aren't they always asking, did the doctor stray from the standard of care? I would guess, and it sounds like I'm wrong, that the question is always the same. In this situation, did the doctor stray from the standard of care? Well, there's different types of cases. So when we're talking about a medical malpractice case, so I have to back up for a second and say that not all cases that medical experts are asked to review are always medical malpractice cases. Sometimes they're personal injury cases. Like for example, if the plaintiff slipped and fell and broke their femur, their attorney may be suing the owner of the building who didn't, you know, shovel their walkway, let's say. And they may need a medical expert to opine on whether, you know, how badly that femur fracture was or how long it was going to take that person to, to get better. So those are questions about prognosis or maybe even causation. So did that fall cause the femur fracture? Was there some pre-existing condition that led to it? So those are sometimes some of the, the legal questions that one would be asked. We're talking about a medical malpractice case. Oftentimes the question have to do with standard of care. And what that legal question is, again, this is a legal definition and it varies a bit by which state you are in and what the definition is in that state. But it has to do with a similarly trained person in the same community as the defendant and what you would do more likely than not. So that is a standard of care definition. Back to the personal injury, don't they have, don't the personal injury attorneys already have a bunch of orthopedic surgeons that they have relationships with? You know, they send their workman's comp to, they send like, they they have these, because right, because I'm an ENT, I don't really see that type of stuff. 
And I don't really see orthopedic injuries. But you should. So it's not just orthopedic injuries. So for ENT, for example, I've had to find ENT doctors for, for a car accident where somebody had a car accident and then developed tinnitus in right after the car accident. So was that accident the cause of that issue? Or maybe they had, or they developed a, you know, a nasal fracture and have some ongoing pain and they're complaining that that is related to the accident. So that would be something where, you know, an otolaryngologist were asked to opine about a personal injury case. So yes, you're right. Orthopedic cases would be more common and, and yes, most personal injury attorneys would know orthopedic surgeons, but honestly, when I talk to attorneys, they like newer experts because they don't want their experts to be so kind of rehearsed and they want people to, who are kind of working and clinically active and are viewed by the courts as being, you know, good doctors who are just doing this on the side. So I I don't know if if that answers your question about that, Yeah, but yes. So if they've got someone who's already in the pipeline, they have their reasons for not wanting to continue using the same people. Correct. Or they may have used the same guy and they feel like, you know, this person's really getting old and they would like somebody younger and and newer to use. So there's that as well. Okay. There's also different types of cases too. So, you know, there's criminal cases, there's probate cases. So all of these different cases at times will require different types of medical experts. And so what our role will be different depending on the type of case and depending upon the question that is being asked of us. So I am sold. I'm ready to get started. Nice. What do I do next? Okay. So let's first talk about whether you're the right person to do this. So I am. just because you, I'm sure you are, (laughs) you're perfect. But as I said before, most of the time you need somebody who's clinically active because they're going to want to hire somebody who has that. Yeah, they're still actively practicing. They're up to date. They know what's what it's like to practice. Exactly. Yeah. They also, you know, they really want someone who's a good explainer. So if you have a history of teaching and you're good at it, that is something that the attorneys really like to see because your job, when it comes down to it, you're teaching the judge and the jury. And so if you're a good teacher, you know, that's great. And, but you need to have some time outside of your clinical job to work on this. If you're, if you don't have time to do these, these extracurriculars, then it's not going to work because there's a lot of deadlines. But these extracurriculars bring in revenue. Correct. Right. Well, so actually, why don't we just skip to that question? right now, and then we'll get back to how to get started. Okay. If you're deciding whether or not you want to do it, you're going to need to set time aside. So it needs to be worth it economically for you, right? Because none of us, nobody listening to this podcast right now is doing it with a margarita in their hand on the beach, sitting around wondering what they should do next because they've got nothing better to do. No, super busy. So what are we talking about in terms of compensation? And please give like give a rate and then hourly rate, daily rate. Yeah. So, you know, the hourly rate, so mostly it's by the hour for this type of work. And so it's usually 
$400 to $500 and more per hour. For some super subspecialized physicians, it's up to a hundred, like $1,000 an hour. But most of the time, it's in the range of, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars an hour. And what I say to people when they're asking me how much should I charge, that's exactly what I say. I say, well, what makes sense for you? Because if you're going to be spending your time and, you know, you're not going to be spending the time with your kids, you know, what hourly amount makes sense for you. And then you ask for that amount to be fair. If you're not a fit for non-physician providers, they will accept less money. So I've seen some like nurses down to like 100, $150 per hour, but mostly doctors, physicians, it's usually like $450, $500 an hour to start. And then when you're doing something like a deposition, you will hold that day for testimony. And so oftentimes what you will do is you'll get paid ahead of time. And then that way, if you get canceled at the last minute, you don't have to give that money back. And it's usually deposition. It's like you get four hours, two to four hours, just scheduled and paid no matter what, depending upon, you know, how your schedule works and whether it can be easily rescheduled. And then for trial testimony, a lot of times you'll get paid for eight hours of the, whether or not you testify for, for 30 minutes or, or no time, same thing, you get paid ahead of time. But I will say the number of cases that go to deposition or trial are, are small. So most of the time it's early on, you're asked to look at records, you review them, you're spending time with your phone, timing it, keeping track of your hours, and then you call up the physician and say, okay, this is what I think, and you're getting reimbursed for all of that time. So that's the typical bread and butter of the work that you're doing. Do we get to round up like the lawyers do? You do, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> so I charge for you know the closest six minutes. So I'm getting paid for everything. I mean, you don't want to be a total pig because you want the lawyer to want to work with you again. And if you seem like you're nickel and diming in you, they may put a bad, you know, taste in, in your mouth, in their mouth. But in general, you should get reimbursed for what you do and reimbursed for your time, which is something that we're not used to. No, I would guess that you get more efficient at it, too, the more you do it. So at the beginning, it'll take you many hours to go through a single case, whereas now, given that you've done many cases, you can go through them really quickly. And so it ends up costing the lawyers less money and for a more educated and helpful opinion, since you now know what they're asking. Brad, I think you're right on that. And it's funny, when I first started doing it, I forgot while I, why I was reading the cases. It was like, I was reading it and I was looking for, because I'm a, I'm a primary care doctor. So I was looking for, oh, they should have their colonoscopy. Like, <laughs> I was just like thinking about how I would take care of this patient. That's not what your role is. You're, that's not what you're asked to do. You, and so you, you learn some tricks, like understanding what the legal question is before you kind of look at the records can be helpful in framing the review and you spend less time doing it as well. Got it. Okay. So we skipped ahead. Let's get back to how to get started. You just like start calling lawyers, open the yellow pages. 
you can do, there's, there's so many different answers to this, honestly. So I have, I'm actually the administrator of a Facebook group, which is called the Physician Medical Expert Facebook group. And it's a great community. If you're not in it, you should be, Brad. But I will tell you that it's great because there are people on there who have tons and tons of experience down to people who have none. And people say different things about how they got their first case. So a lot of people, it's like me, they got their case from a partner or another, you know, doctor at their, who referred it to them, but there's a lot of other ways to get it. So one of my favorite recommendations is LinkedIn. It happens to be that a lot of attorneys are on LinkedIn. And so you should have a profile on there that is, has your information so that attorneys know that you're potentially interested because sometimes when they're searching for someone, they're going to just search on LinkedIn. What keywords should we have? Because right now, the only people that are reaching out to me on LinkedIn are other doctors, particularly physician coaches and people who want to manage my money. Those are the only people that are reaching out to me. I don't have any lawyers. So what should I be putting there? So you can, I, on mine, I have medical expert witness. And I have on mine that I'm a medical expert specialist litigation. So those are the kinds of words that that you may want to have in there somewhere. Although there are people who will say, no, I don't like that to be anywhere because I don't want it to look like I'm advertising. This is a little bit of the different people's opinions on in the Facebook group that you can see if you look in that group. But I personally think that it is fine to advertise. I mean, everybody advertises, attorneys advertise, that's how you get business. But the important thing as medical experts is we need to be very clear that our opinion is not for sale. We are there to give an unbiased opinion, no matter who hires us. So you don't want anything anywhere to make it seem as though um, you're going to say whatever they want you to say, because that is not the right, that is not the right direction that you want to do to be a, to be a good medical expert. And I will say this other ways to get involved is exactly like you said. So do you know, do you have a friend who's a, an attorney call them up and say, Hey, look, I don't know if you ever get cases that involve ear, nose and throat doctors, but this is the type of surgery that I do. If you ever have a case where you need someone to review it, give me a call. You know, that's completely reasonable or sending emails. A lot of lawyers have websites with their emails that are easily accessible for everybody. And then if you're more concerned and you just want to do a lot of, especially starting out, a lot of medical experts only want to do defense cases and medical malpractice cases. So another tip that I recommend is to reach out to your medical malpractice insurer and tell them that you're interested in reviewing cases because they're a lot of times the ones that are looking for somebody for their insurer insurers. And then you can also give lectures like continuing legal education lectures at law firms or at conferences. And then there's directories and referral services. So there's a whole bunch of ways that you can get your name out there. You had mentioned only wanting to do defense work. So I definitely 
want to talk about that because I had Stacia Dearman on the show where she talks about second victim syndrome, right? Where as the doctor, if you're the one that had the complication and you're being sued, you are allowed to have a reaction to that and an experience and you will, and it can be devastating. So for all the listeners, if you haven't had that, uh, listen to that episode, definitely check it out. Or get Dr. Gita Pensa, who, who went through 10 years on a single case and her experience. So she talks about just the whole world of it. And in speaking to them after the show, one thing that they said in common was, it's not really the plaintiff's attorney that are the gangsters out there. Sometimes it's the expert witness. Like you'll have these expert witnesses that they sell their souls, right? They just become these, they just tell the plaintiff's attorneys whatever it is that they need to say in order to, for them to win the case. And I'm guessing that they didn't start out that way. I'm guessing that they started out like the rest of us did, went to medical school, wanted to help people, kept everything on the up and up. But, you know, as lucrative as it can be, it it becomes a slippery slope. So how do you prevent yourself from becoming that doctor? How do you make sure if you're, if you want to, don't want to limit yourself to just defense work, how do you make sure you keep your moral compass? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. And you're sort of, I see it in a couple of different ways. But, you know, I think that the, it is fine. So you're talking about medical malpractice cases. And as I made the, the clear before, there are actually, you know, a bunch of different types of cases that you can get involved in that don't involve turning on physicians where you can be a medical expert, like personal injury, et cetera. But in terms of medical malpractice cases, you can choose to take only defense cases. And I'd really recommend that everybody really think about what types of cases that you're comfortable taking early on. And it's really an incredible it's very personal choice. And my personal, you know, how I've felt about this has evolved. I used to actually be only defense and I've come completely a different way. In fact, my husband is an attorney and I made him promise when I was in just starting off as an intern, I made him promise not to do any medical malpractice and he doesn't for because of that, which is just sort of interesting, even though he does do plaintiff work, that is like how strong I was feeling about it. So the thing is, though, if you do only medical malpractice defense, you actually need to defend against the appearance of being biased towards the physician, because the attorney on the other side may be able to say, wait, you only take defense cases. So, oh, you're going to say anything to help out your physician colleagues. So you need to be able to explain that you are still giving an unbiased opinion. And I think that most of us can explain why we would do that and that it isn't biased, but that's turning that your question a little bit on its head, right? So what I can say is that, you know, I look at it now as my duty as a physician expert to review cases on both sides. And I try to look at the medical facts as objectively and impartially as I can. I try to put my shoes into the treating physician and kind of review the case from that perspective. But again, as I said before, the attorneys I work with, 
know me as a straight shooter. And because of this, they tend to trust my opinion. I think that, yes, there are known to be some, I guess, professional experts out there. I don't know that they're really helping anybody because any good defense attorney can make them look silly right? If they're not seeing patients on a regular basis, and all they're doing is making all their money by, you know, doing all of these cases, they're going to look kind of foolish on the stand next to next to a medical expert who's a straight shooter. So I don't see it quite the same way that there's these like these evil people. I just see it kind of in my way that you need to understand the rules so that you don't inadvertently do something that you're not supposed to do, which I think is much more likely to happen just because we don't understand this world. This legal world is like a whole, you know, universe that as physicians, we don't quite understand. And so it's important to understand what some of the words mean and the mistakes that you can make so that you don't do these things. Because once you do make a big mistake, you may take off an attorney who may not want to hire you. I'm on the list of a matchmaking service kind of like yours. I won't name them so that they don't get the advertising. Well, I will say mine is different. Just so you know, I don't charge my, so mine is different and mine's very expert friendly and I never charge a percentage on the top. So that's different than most services out there. Oh, I'm not paying for this service and I don't know how much the. Right. But if you get a case, do they charge the attorney more to be like, are they involved in your re- relationship with the attorney? Probably. So that's how it's different. That's different with me. I know what I've requested to be paid. And as long as I get that, you know, the rest to me is, it's really irrelevant. Like if the plaintiff has to, uh, plaintiff's attorney has to pay for the service, but it hasn't worked out because I'm only getting these ultra specialized cases that I think only should be opined by these super specialists at academic centers. Like I'm not getting, seeing any bread and butter cases. So my question for you is, where are all those cases and how can I get them? Okay. So you make a, an interesting observation. And I think depending upon the service, and I can like guess what the service is, there are, you know, different, different things to know. So one of the modules in my course goes into a lot of detail about the directories and referral services. And basically you need to understand how each service makes their money, number one. Number two, whether you will be listed online. So is it going to be obvious to everybody that you're, you know, one of their people? And then third, feedback from other experts about like numbers and types of cases, issues with you know, fees and billing and so on. So the physician medical expert group that I'm the administrator for, members will at times give feedback about some of these services. And so I recommend that you search this group before you decide to list with any new service because it can be very eye-opening. But in terms of the bread and butter cases, it may depend on your specialty, but it's always good to reach out to local law firms and just let them know that you're available. Because, you know, if it's something really straightforward, 
they may not want to pay the fee to to find somebody. So they might have their roster of attorneys, uh, sorry, of experts, and they would want to know that you're available. You mentioned your course a couple of times. Could you give us an outline of it? Because right now, I don't know what I don't know. So I think if you give us an outline, then I'll know at least what I don't know and be able to go from there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good question. So for beginner experts. So if you've done more than three cases, and if you've taken any other courses, this is not the right course for you. This is really for people to learn best practices for medical expert work, to learn how to create your own small business entity, to master the legal jargon, as I've talked about, that you need for this medical expert analysis, to choose which type of cases that you want to take on, and then to learn how to break into the forensic world. So I wanted to share a story to just illustrate why it's important to take a course. So there's a person named Carol, and she worked as a primary care physician. And she was contacted by an attorney who asked her to review a case for him. And so she had considered taking a course, but didn't want to invest in the money. And she figured she'd figure it out as she went on. So she got the records, she reviewed the case for the strengths and weaknesses. And she sent the attorney an email documenting her findings, which seems reasonable, right? Like as physicians, we're taught to document everything. Like, of course you would do that. But in the expert world, sending that email was like a huge mistake because the attorney hadn't asked her to put those things in writing and they were discoverable by the other side. So the thing is, you can make a simple mistake like this and it can result and the attorney being really upset with you and then sharing that with their colleagues. So it's just really important to be aware of those kinds of things. So that's my push for taking a course, whether it's my course or another course before you get into this. Well, where can people find your course? Where can people find your course? Where can people find your Facebook group? Okay. So the Facebook group is called the Physician Medical Expert Group, and it's searchable. And I can give you a link so you can put that in your episode notes. In the show notes. Yes. My course is available on my website, but it's actually hosted on the SOMIDOCS University website. So you can find it in either place. It's called Basics for Becoming a Medical Expert Witness. And my website is amyfogelmanmd.com. So you can find it right there. Excellent. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be signing up for that course and signing up for the Facebook group. So I I appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking the time to educate us on all this. Definitely. So you didn't ask about the moral compass, though. Mm -hmm. So I will just say the last thing I would say about that, though, that I didn't mention is that in terms of the moral compass, it's really useful to have colleagues or mentors that you can bounce things off of. And so not to be alone because attorneys most of the time are are well-meaning, but sometimes they will try to get you to either 
opine about something that's a little bit out of your area of expertise to say, well, like, hey, but you're a surgeon and isn't the chest kind of like close to the head and neck or, you know, and and then it's just like a quick case. Can't you just look at it? And then you'll think, oh, yeah, you know, I did that in residency. And then you're, you step in it and all of a sudden you're, you know, in the middle of the ocean kind of floundering. So it's important to stay in your lane and to stay with things that you're very comfortable about. And I will just say again, I don't know if I said this before, but our credibility is really the only thing that we have going for us as expert witnesses. As soon as you lose that, no one's going to hire you. So don't make a dumb mistake and try to sell, you know, your signature because no one's going to hire you down the line. So that would be just a dumb mistake to make. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Eagle, Amy Fogelman, MD.com. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again. And I'm on social media at Amy Fogelman, MD on everything. On everything. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Brad. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locum story for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, men to burnt out ends. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.